Chapter Twenty Seven of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter Twenty Seven. Found. I gave a low cry and rushed down the steps. Don't go! I called out to the driver. I shall want you in ten minutes. And hurrying back, I ran upstairs in a condition of mind such as I have no reason to be proud of. Happily, Mr. Grice was not there to see me. Gone? Miss Oliver gone? I cried to the maid, whom I found trembling in a corner of the hall. Yes, ma'am, it was my fault, ma'am. She was in bed so quiet I thought I might step out for a minute. But when I came back, her clothes were missing and she was gone. She must have slipped out at the front door while Dan was in the back hall. I don't see how ever she had the strength to do it. Nor did I. But I did not stop to reason about it. There was too much to be done. Rushing on, I entered the room I had left in such high hopes a few hours before. Emptiness was before me. And I realized what it was to be baffled at the moment of success. But I did not waste an instant in inactivity. I searched the closets and pulled open the drawers, found her coat and hat gone, but not Mrs. Van Burnam's brown skirt, though the purse had been taken out of the pocket. Is her bag here? I asked. Yes, it was in its old place under the table. And on the washstand and bureau were the simple toilet articles I had been told she had brought there. In what haste she must have fled to leave these necessities behind her! But the greatest shock I received was the sight of the knitting work with which I had so inconsiderately meddled the evening before, lying in raveled heaps on the table as if torn to bits in a frenzy. This was a proof that the fever was yet on her, and as I contemplated this fact, I took courage, thinking that one in her condition would not be allowed to run the streets long, but would be picked up and put in some hospital. In this hope, I began my search. Miss Althorpe, who came in just as I was about to leave the house, consented to telephone to police headquarters a description of the girl with a request to be notified. If such a person should be found in the streets or on the docks or at any of the station houses that night, not I assured her as we left the telephone and I prepared to say goodbye for the day, that you need expect her to be brought back to this house, for I do not mean that she shall ever darken your doors again. So let me know if they find her, and I will relieve you of all further responsibility in the matter. Then I started out. To name the streets I traversed or the places I visited that day would take more space than I would like to devote to the subject. Dusk came, and I had failed in obtaining the least clue to her whereabouts. Evening followed, and still no trace of the fugitive. What was I to do? Take Mr. Grice into my confidence after all? That would be galling to my pride, but I began to fear I should have to submit to this humiliation. When I happened to think of the Chinaman. To think of him once was to think of him twice, and to think of him twice was to be conscious of an irresistible desire to visit his place and find out if anyone but myself 
had been there to inquire after the lost one's clothes. Accompanied by Lena, I hurried away to 3rd Avenue. The laundry was near 27th Street. As we approached, I grew troubled and unaccountably expectant. When we reached it, I understood my excitement and instantly became calm, for there stood Miss Oliver, gazing like one under a spell through the lighted window panes into the narrow shop, where the owner bent over his ironing. She had evidently stood there some time, for a small group of half-grown lads were watching her with every symptom of being about to break into a mischievous display of curiosity. Her hands, which were without gloves, were pressed against the glass, and her whole attitude showed an intensity of fatigue which would have laid her on the ground had she not been sustained by an equal intensity of purpose. Sending Lena for a carriage, I approached the poor creature and drew her forcibly from the window. Do you want anything here? I asked. I will go in with you if you do. She surveyed me with strange apathy, and yet with a certain sort of relief, too. Then she slowly shook her head. I don't know anything about it. My head swims and everything looks queer, but someone or something sent me to this place. Come in, I urged. Come in for a minute, and half supporting her, half dragging her, I managed to get her across the threshold and into the Chinaman's shop. Immediately a dozen faces were pressed where hers had been. The Chinaman, a stolid being, turned as he heard the little bell tinkle which announced a customer. Is this the lady who left the clothes here a few nights ago? I asked. He stopped and stared, recognizing me slowly and remembering by degrees what had passed between us at our last interview. You telly me Lely die. How him Lely when Lely die? The lady is not dead. I made a mistake. Is this the lady? Lely talk. I no see face. I hear speak. Have you seen this man before? I inquired of my nearly insensible companion. I think so. In a dream, she murmured trying to recall her poor wandering wits back from some region into which they had strayed. "'Him Lely!' cried the Chinaman, overjoyed at the prospect of getting his money. "'Pletty speak! I knowy him! Lely want clo?' "'Not tonight. The lady is sick. See, she can hardly stand.' And overjoyed at this seeming evidence that the police had failed to get wind of my interest in this place, I slipped a coin into the Chinaman's hand and drew Miss Oliver away towards the carriage I now saw drawing up before the shop. Lena's eyes, when she came up to help me, were a sight to see. They seemed to ask who this girl was and what I was going to do with her. I answered the look by a very brief and evidently wholly unexpected explanation. This is your cousin who ran away, I remarked. Don't you recognize her? Lena gave me up then and there, but she accepted my explanation, and even lied in her desire to carry out my whim. Yes, ma'am, said she, and glad I am to see her again. And with a deft push here and a gentle pull there, she succeeded in getting the sick woman into the carriage. The crowd, which had considerably increased by this time, was beginning to flock about us with shouts of no little derision. 
Escaping it as best I could, I took my seat by the poor girl's side and bade Lena to give the order for home. When we left the curbstone behind, I felt that the last page in my adventures as an amateur detective had closed. But I counted without my cost. Miss Oliver, who was in an advanced stage of fever, lay like a dead weight on my shoulder during the drive down the avenue. But when we entered the park and drew near my house, she began to show such signs of violent agitation that it was with difficulty that the united efforts of Lena and myself could prevent her from throwing herself out of the carriage door, which she had somehow managed to open. As the carriage stopped, she grew worse, and though she made no further efforts to leave it, I found her present impulses even harder to contend with than the former for now she would not be pushed or dragged out, but crouched back moaning and struggling, her eyes fixed on the stoop, which was not unlike that of the adjoining house, till, with a sudden realization that the cause of her terror lay in her fear of re-entering the scene of her late terrifying experiences, I bade the coachman drive on, and reluctantly, I own, carried her back to the house she had left in the morning. And this is how I came to spend a second night in Miss Althorpe's hospitable mansion. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28 Taken Aback One incident more, and this portion of my story is at an end. My poor patient, sicker than she had been the night before, left me but little leisure for thought or action, disconnected with my care for her. But towards morning, she grew quieter, and finding in an open drawer those tangled threads of yarn, of which I had spoken, I began to rewind them, out of a natural desire to see everything neat and orderly about me. I had nearly finished my task when I heard a strange noise from the bed. It was a sort of gurgling cry which I found hard to interpret, but which only stopped when I laid my work down again. Manifestly, this sick girl had very nervous fancies. When I went down to breakfast the next morning, I was in that complacent state of mind natural to a woman who feels that her abilities have asserted themselves, and that she would soon receive a recognition of the same at the hands of the one person for whose commendation she had chiefly been working. The identification of Miss Oliver by the Chinaman was the last link in the chain connecting her with the Mrs. James Pope, who had accompanied Mr. Van Burnham to his father's house in Gramercy Park. And though I would fain have had the murdered woman's rings to show, I was contented enough with the discoveries I had made to wish for the hour which would bring me face to face with the detective. But a surprise awaited me at the breakfast table in the shape of a communication from that gentleman. It had just been brought from my house by Lena, and it ran thus. Dear Miss Butterworth, pardon our interference. We have found the rings which you think so conclusive an evidence of guilt against the person secreting them. And, with your permission, this was basely underlined, Mr. Franklin Van Burnham will be in custody today. I will wait upon you at ten. Respectfully yours, Ebenezer Grice. Franklin Van Burnham? Was I dreaming? Franklin Van Burnham? Accused of this crime and in custody? What did it mean? 
I had found no evidence against Franklin Van Burnham. End of chapter 28 End of book 2